Listener Production. Pete Hellier is one seriously funny dude. He's also seriously busy. He's a regular host on the project and the creator and star of Ten's How to Stay Married. Pete Hellier has created and co-produced two series of the award-winning It's a Date for ABC TV. He hosts a podcast called You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. He's written multiple children's books and his latest stand-up special is streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. COVID! It's a hoax! It's population control! They're putting 5G into you and you and you. I was like, do you really believe that this Australian federal government who couldn't organise an NBN rollout, (laughs) they are giving us free 5G and not taking any credit for it? But what is Pete about behind the smiles and behind the jokes? How much of his real life is channelled into his work? And why, even with enormous TV success, does he continuously return to stand-up comedy? My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, we will have The Weekend List, where I'm going to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my surprising, funny and altogether lovely conversation with Pete Hellier. Pete Hellier, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, Jamila. Now, normally when I hang out with you, I'm at the other end of a long bench on the project and you're sort of on the other end being funny. Here is my question. Mm. What does it feel like being under that kind of pressure every night to be consistently funny? Because I can be funny accidentally. I know it's your job, but doing it consistently every night live, that feels like a lot. Oh, well, I can definitely be funny accidentally too. Um, I, 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 however, I get the laughs, I'm, I'm happy to take them. The project <laughs> is is a, is a tricky one because it's. I mean, I don't feel pressure. The good thing about doing it night after night, or at least I do Monday to Thursdays, is you can, you know, if you have one where you weren't quite happy with the way the jokes came out, or you know, um, it moves pretty quickly. You just get on with the next show. Yeah. But the project is a, is a strange beast in that it's not a comedy show as such, so you're not sometimes in moments it's time to be funny and then a minute later it's it's not time to be funny and then it's time to be funny again and then for a while it might not be time to be funny. So it was the biggest adjustment I had to make when I've joined about recognising, I mean, and there are obvious times it's not time to be funny, but there are also times when it's, you know, you need to let others in, your joke could block somebody else from actually sharing a thought. So it's, it's kind of recognising those moments as well. So it, it's... It's not like most panel shows where your job is really to be as funny as you can for half an hour or an hour. It is more of a, you know, trying to read uh, read the room a bit more, I guess. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats and one of them is as a stand-up. One is as host of the project. You host a podcast and you also are involved in acting. Some of them are sort of team sports, right? Like the project or an ensemble cast show. You're part of a group and you're working together and – if you're on stage doing stand-up comedy, it is literally just you and the mic and the audience responding. Do you have to move into a, quite a different headspace to think about achieving as a team and achieving as an individual? Yeah, it, it certainly is, and you, I, I do. It's not a difficult shift. Um, I just embrace, you know, whatever's in front of me, I, I think. It, and the the thing I love about stand-up, one, is the, it's what I started as and I, it's what I consider myself still to be above and beyond anything else. 
And what I love about that more than anything else, and you would know this from the project, you may appreciate it, is there's no meetings in stand-up comedy. <laughs> it is, I might run jokes by my wife or other stand-ups or friends, you know, just to get a, a feel of, you know, what they think. But it's not a meeting. I'm not having a, the only meeting I have is with my management. Uh, we usually catch up for a coffee around October and they ask the question, do you have another show for next year? And I, it's yes or no. That's the only meeting I have. So yeah, it's it's and I love the but I love the ensemble as a team as well. I love sharing whether it's the project or you know how to stay married, where you know you can write a script and then you see a whole you know pre-production crew kind of bring it to life and 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 then on the you know the production when that happens of, of people, I love the sitting standing or sitting back on a, on a production set and watching. It's kind of half construction site and half school camp. It's really it's quite intoxicating to watch and then people just who are all really good at their jobs is just getting their job done. And if there's a problem, it's usually fixed, you know, in, in, in a minute, you know, it's, it's incredible to watch. So I love being part of that as well. So I don't necessarily have a, a favor, but it is a, it is a different kind of, I'm not sure if it's a different part of the brain, but this is a different feeling I get. Do you have a memory of the first time as a kid that you made someone laugh and really enjoyed the feeling? Like, do you remember when you realized that I like that? I do have a memory. I'm not sure if it's the first time, but it's a reasonably strong memory. And my cousin probably reminded me, and maybe that's why I remember. But I do remember the feeling of I had older cousins, I older or much younger cousins. I was kind of a bit of an island uh, by myself. I, I, you know, unfortunately, I, I lost. Um, we lost a cousin who was my age when I was eight. Uh, he passed away of leukemia, sadly, and he, like so, all of a sudden, I had cousins who were like four or five years older and cousins four or five years younger. So I remember at Christmas, uh, everyone was just making jokes. And, and that side of the family, my dad's side in particular, are very funny um, and, and very loud. And I wasn't, I, I'm not, you may, <laughs> you may disagree, Jamil, but I'm not, I'm not a particularly loud person. I don't, I don't necessarily walk into a room and. I don't disagree. Like I do think you're quite quiet it's at least mm. you're quiet in the meetings yeah well sometimes that's just a lack of interest <laughs> or, 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 or I'm, I'm distracted by by uh, you know the Boston Celtics playing a game <laughs> or something you know there are times I'll zone in on the on the things I'm really passionate about and there are other times where I'm like you guys have got this yeah I got you know I've got nothing to say here but uh, yeah I don't necessarily walk into a room and announce myself and and um and yeah I would kind of see myself more of a, an introvert the, the, rather than an extrovert but I um and they're making these jokes and, and kind of coming up with fake headlines to describe. My nan had cracked the shits a little bit and, and um, because we were arguing about Collingwood and Essendon, we were a Collingwood and Essendon family from, a you know, my immediate family is mostly Collingwood, but my cousins and, and uncles and aunties, there's a lot of Essendon there. So there was, and it was, I think it, was, it must have been around 1990. Um, actually, it might have been before that because there was a big fight in 1990 because of the the grand final was played yeah. in Collingwood one, but it was before then because I was younger. I was about 11 or 12 and I made a headline, something, I forget what it was. It was, I remember using the term frack hour and, and, and um, Nana crack shits in family frack hour or, or something. And it's not necessarily hilarious when I say it now, but in the moment it just felt, it must've for them felt like this voice they'd almost hadn't heard yeah. kind of come to life. And then they all just pissed themselves laughing. And they're like, from that moment, I was kind of, given a voice at the table in a way. And I kind of felt confident that I could make people 
laugh and it was a, a thrill I had of making my older cousins uh, laugh. Do you have memories of stand-up shows where you didn't make people laugh? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So my first gig was at the ESPY uh, in Melbourne on October 26, 1996, and that went really well. You know, I was like, okay, cool. That's, I got the first one over and done with. You know, they say that's the hardest one. And and then the second one went even better. And then I thought, well, this Santa, it's, it's not that hard, you know. <laughs> so the third gig I went back and I even said to her, if you, if you, you know, my sister, she was dating this new bloke, I said, I'll bring him down. You know, it's going pretty well. You know, you can come down and watch. And she invited a few other family friends and they came down and watched. And I was going to try some new stuff. I pretty much done the same material of the first gig and second material so I was going to change it up and it was awful it went horribly bad and what do you do when that like do you just keep going you keep yeah, telling more yeah, jokes you, that aren't working you get hot and you sweat and you feel your heart like it's about to burst out of your, your, your chest in a, in, a, in a not in a oh I found love kind of way it's the opposite it's like the worst heartbreak you have felt condensed into a minute, uh, you know, and you're feeling it intensely and it because it feels like rejection and it feels like uh, hatred and it feels like it's not, you don't think people are just passively not liking you, that you feel like they're actively hating you. It's an action. Uh, yeah, it's a choice they've made. Like, And whether that's, that choice has been made based on your material or just that they don't like the look of you or whatever it is, they've rejected you and it feels awful. So in that situation, you finally get off uh, after you know, four and a half, five minutes, which feels like an hour for me and probably the audience as well. And um, although I think there's a, a gladiatorial aspect of, of some comedy rooms where you'd like to see a couple of people, you know, if everything's doing well, then, yeah, what's the point of that? <laughs> that's no funny if everybody you, can do it. You want some failure. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's, you know, and that, I, I get that. I, my sister met me afterwards and I, I I'd met this bloke. She's now married to this bloke, so um you know, um, it worked out all right for them. I'm glad I didn't ruin it. But um, but it was just like nobody quite knew where to look. I went and got like four UDL cans and I've never drunk UDL before or since. <laughs> and I sat, sat on St Kilda Beach and I, I felt like, oh, this dream that I kind of started believing in based on two gigs, <laughs> it's not for me. I don't think I can do this. I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough to do this. And then you, you get back on the horse and, and the next gig wasn't so bad and, and then you go from there. But I certainly remember how awful that gig was and that feeling was. Yeah. So you have died on stage and watch this for a terrible segue. Earlier this year, the media told me you had actually died, which is only funny because you're here talking to me. Would not be yes. funny had you actually died. Can you tell me what happened? So I was on the train heading to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with a mate, Joe, and we were chatting away and I got two text messages saying from two reasonably, not completely random, but two, um, one was comedian Cameron James, who I just recorded an episode of my podcast with, and that that was basically the first time we got to hang out and he, he was really great and we got along really well. And he just go, hey, mate, how you doing? And then almost at the same time, I got a, a message from a bloke who, uh, uh, Nate, a guy who worked on How to Stay Married, one of our props masters. We hadn't really been in touch for about a year or so. And he just, it was just, are you okay? And because I was kind of talking with my friend Joe, I kind of, I, I noted that it was weird that I got these two messages, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be on my phone replying to people. I thought I'd just get back to them uh, later on. 
I went and saw Judith Lucy and Denise Scott, wonderful show. And our plan was to meet Limo at a pub afterwards. And about 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes of that show, my phone was just, it was on silent, but I could feel it kind of vibrating in my pocket, this messages and somebody trying to call and then messages and messages. And I thought, bloody hell, Liam, I just will get there soon, mate, okay? <laughs> just order a beer and just take care of yourself. And then as, so as soon as the show finished, I, I got my phone out of my pocket and I, I looked and there was a message from my manager saying, did you get to the show okay? Are you okay? Give me a call straight away. And then another one saying, uh, a more direct one from uh, Chris Bendel, our project executive producer, saying, Twitter says you're dead. Is this true? <laughs> so, sorry, part of me is like... If I read in the media that a friend of mine had died, my first instinct would not be to contact them. Do you know what <laughs> well, I mean? I would not well, be expecting can, a response. You can never say, Jamila, that the project doesn't go straight to the source. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so I then got on Twitter and, yeah, I was trending. I think the wow. one trending topic was me and, um, and that I apparently died in a car accident. Um, I'm so sorry. A, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's a weird, it's, it was a slightly weird feeling. I mean, I knew I was alive. I knew I hadn't died in a car accident, so that was reassuring. Um, but then you, you know, I rang my manager as soon as I got out of the uh, the art centre. And my, to be honest, my first reaction was, can you take screen grabs of all the things people are saying? Just because, uh, like, I went into show mode. I'm like, this is okay. I'm going to address this at some point, and this is going to be great at some point. Um, so, just you know, if you could take screenshots um, of things people are saying, because it got kind of, it was weird. I mean, yeah. you know, and then we went to the pub. And we kind of started looking at some stuff, and I took a photo, a proof of life photo, and and somebody said, oh, you know, you need to, you need, you need to." Uh, you know, had the newspaper with today's date. Today's date, and, yes, proof. But you know how hard it is to find a newspaper in, in 2022? To, you know, so proof of life is harder to achieve <laughs> now. But And it was weird because people were genuinely uh, worried. Somebody had noted that I had tweeted since the story had kind of broken. So some people had worked it out. So I don't know because there's a lot of, like, hot takes about uh, me and my comedy career, uh, Jamila. I don't know how many of those, what percentage of those knew it was fake and were then just having fun with it. Yeah. More power to you. But there were some hot takes. And I, I kind of do go, wow, if you didn't, if you really believed that I was dead, this is your reaction. And that's quite interesting. I mean, it brought home to me, Jamila, but I don't think I'm getting a grandstand named after me at the MCG. People weren't sad enough. We we, we can take that off the table, basically. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Basically. And then, but what it also uh, brought home to me, Jamila, was was that outside of of entertainment, nobody's on Twitter. Like, we we, we feel like it's the epicentre of our lives and we, you know, sometimes... Even on the project, we can re- we can take things on, on from social media and, and almost treat it as news, and it's 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 just not. It really isn't. And 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 everyone who contacted me on that night worked in entertainment, and then family members maybe called me the next day. They had they knew that it wasn't true, but then they were, you know, they were still concerned and, and wondering what had happened. Yeah. Um, but they had kind of caught up with it the next day through probably friends or, or they, may, they may be on Facebook or Twitter and, and, and on one of them and it had gotten to them and, and they had called the check-in. But, um, but yeah, it was, that, that was the, the story of my um, death on Twitter. Well, I'm really glad you're okay. Um, Thank you. 
And I like that insight about Twitter because you're right. Those of us who are on Twitter, it often feels like the centre of the universe and where news is happening and things are breaking and opinions are made. But I know if I post something on Twitter and I post the very same thing on Instagram, Twitter I will get a stream of people who vehemently agree with me and a stream of people who think I should die. And then if I post it on Instagram, I get all these messages being like, yeah, cool, Um, where are your glasses from? And it's just so happy over there and people are just less angry. (laughs) I know. I still try to think about, okay, what is social media doing for me? And how much do I need it in my life? How much, uh, you know, I'm constantly trying to check in with my relationship with social media. Sometimes I think I lie to myself about how much I need it. Uh, Sometimes I do feel like, you know, um, and it's probably not just social media, it's just my phone in general. Sometimes I do need to kind of have, you know, just not have the phone next to me. Um, Because, you know, it's, I've got three boys and, um, and one's 13 and he loves having his phone on. Yeah. There's, there's no, my oldest is like, he's on social media, but really only the, the check in on the Celtics and, and Collingwood. And I've never seen him post anything. My 17 year old, he posts these funny photos of him and his mates on Instagram, you know. And my youngest, we have to be a bit more careful. One, because he's still young, he's still young. But he's grown up his whole world, like his whole life. There's been this thing where where Instagram and, and kind of came along and Facebook at a certain point in, in uh, Liam and Aiden's life. So it, it's only four years difference between the young, uh, you know, the youngest and the oldest, but they are they are quite critical years actually. Yeah, I mean, a lot of friends and I often talk about you know what age were you when you first got a mobile phone. That conversation, I think. My husband's four years older than me. I had a phone in year eight or nine and he didn't have a phone until university. There's a real difference in our experience of the world and the way we interacted at at high school. And for these kids where they've known nothing else but smartphones and having that constant access kind of really freaks me out, to be honest. I think their their inability to handle boredom is is really – it's it's really worrying, you know, because – for a lot of your life, you will be bored. And we used to get bored and we used to complain to mum and dad about being bored. And yeah. used to, you know, cry about not being enough in the pantry or there's not enough fun things to do around here. But we would eventually find something to do. We would go outside, you know. And it, it's it's a fine line of, like, not being a 46-year-old bloke talking about the good old days uh, because there were, you know, things were great and things were shit, you know, at different times. And you don't see kids playing cricket out in the street yeah. <laughs> anymore. yeah. There's really no reason why that can't still be happening. There's like absolutely no reason. There's, you know, cricket is still a popular sport and the streets are basically the same as they were. It's not like cars, yeah, they can travel maybe a bit faster. I don't know, but they're probably safer. Yeah. You know, all the warnings and the whistles and the bells. My car stops for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's just weird that I don't think I've seen a game of street cricket for years. We were at home the other day and my parents and Laura are here from the States and we were sitting in the living room with my husband and my son and we were watching Lego Masters, which is a rare television show that we all enjoy. And we were sitting there watching it. Like, all that was going through my head was when I was a kid, if a whole family sat down in front of the TV, my mum would be like, too much television. All we do is watch television. And now the fact that we were just watching one screen together felt really special and old-fashioned. And lovely. I spoke about this in stand-up once. Television now is like swinging from a tree on a tyre. 
you know, it's like it's almost <laughs> like you've got this romance, the romance of television. Now, <laughs> to be honest, even if I'm watching with one of the other kids, like, it's just like, oh, how good is this? Or, you know, how wholesome? And, you know, is this, this, is, a, this is a nice, pure family moment. <laughs> Speaking of television, television is something you know a lot about, including scripted TV. Tell me about the idea of making a TV show that was about how two people stay married rather than stop being married? There's a couple of things. One, one, I just, I'd always kind of loved the idea of doing an Australian sitcom. And when I probably thought about that when I was growing up, it probably meant like studio audience, that kind of sitcom. And then we don't really do that anymore. And we haven't really done a lot of it. And the ones we've, we've done, you know, to be absolutely honest, are just okay. Yeah. When we started thinking about it, we haven't really done one about just a, a family. There's been broken, you know, families that have been broken. Usually it's a widowed man, weirdly. You know, hey, Dad, all together now. Um, I'm not sure if mother and son fits into that. But, but just to see a, an Australian family um, on screen is weirdly hadn't been done. So it kind of as, as much as it wasn't the freshest idea of really just having, you know, an Australian family on screen, it, it had really almost never been done before. So that was uh, an attraction. And then... When you look around on TV, it's always about the pursuit of getting to the altar and 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 the courtship of, of finding the right guy or finding the right girl. And I just, you know, in my, in my stage of life, I'm much more interested in how do you find yourself and how do you create your own identity in a marriage that's been maybe, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old. And, and so the, you know, in the first series, it really was about Lisa McCune's character kind of deciding that this is not what she wanted. She still wanted to be in the marriage, but she's not, she wasn't happy with playing the mum who was doing the lunches. And yeah. And also that, that my character, Greg, wasn't happy in his work. So actually the starting point for the series was really about a happily married couple. And we didn't really want to go down the idea of the marriage being in jeopardy, at least, you know, not, not in the initial series, but we just wanted to see a, a family that work, is working, a marriage that is working, but they still have their challenges and how do they deal with their challenges? But it was really about those two characters finding out that they had been playing out of position and yeah. that there was nothing wrong with exploring, changing things and, and reevaluating, uh, you know, your role in, in, in the marriage and yeah. the family. Well, you're right because so much of storytelling, you know, we always say storytelling requires a level of conflict, right? And it's usually about conflict of two lovers getting together or the breakup of a relationship so that someone can go be with a new lover and we can do two lovers getting together again, right? That's what we enjoy watching and enjoy doing. And yet for most of us, life isn't that tumultuous and (laughs) exciting, right? You know, my husband and I talk about the fact that we met, we fell in love, we accidentally had a baby and then I got very sick and we went through sort of being a new couple to an old married couple to very, very fast with the raising the kid in between and there's no content for that. There's no culture for that because that doesn't really exist on our screens. Yeah, which is is like that's for me, is way more fascinating. If you were to pitch that, I'd be like, if, if I was in charge of Amazon, I'd be going, Jamila, please write that up. Please. Like that's, <sighs> Could have been rich. Mu- <laughs> if only you were in charge of Amazon. And that is big stuff. That's big life stuff. And I'm equally as interested in, in the things that, like conflict doesn't always have to be that big, you know, like that and that's serious. It can be shows about the big things in life. It's really important that we do that. But also sometimes just the little day-to-day challenges that people are experiencing because, not you know, most days people aren't going through the life-changing challenges. They're going through 
you know, the challenges of screen time that we've been talking about, you know, yeah. and, and, the, and the challenges of sex drive in marriage or those, yeah. those things that we just wanted to explore. Yeah, the ordinary stuff, right? Mm. Often when it comes to actors, the challenge that's given to you is playing a great new love affair, right? The challenge that was given to you and Lisa McEwen was to play a marriage that was, you know, already bedded in and two people who knew each other extremely well. I don't want to ask about your acting craft and sound like a wanker, but what was it like preparing to do that? I mean, I was, I'm constantly learning and, and to have Lisa McCune, you know. Good teacher. Is, is, yeah, she's a masterclass. I mean, she she has no idea she's Lisa McCune. She's like the nicest person in the world. And and if you came to set and just observed, you would think Lisa was like straight out of film school. And this was based on her enthusiasm, the way she interacts with the crew and and, and, and the cast. And then when they call action, you realise, oh, no, she's actually one of the great actors of our, you know, of our generation, uh, you know, in Australia. And so to learn off her was amazing. And then we had great directors who I was constantly learning things. I mean, the, the last series we did, I, you know, we had Fiona Banks was one of our directors and, and, and she taught me just, you know, quite simply this, just about experiencing that, you know, the different, making sure you're not the same emotion all the way through the scene. You know, there needs to be, you know, um, a wave of it. And I know that through in, in writing, when I'm writing, but and maybe subconsciously I kind of knew it, but just to hear it say out loud, it kind of clicked a bit more for me. And this just realizing I need to kind of, you know, think my way through scenes. And 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 I've worked with, you know, Brennan Cow, the movie we did, Brennan Cowell and 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 Yvonne Strahovski and Peter Dinklage and and yeah, Bridie Carter. It was, you know, it's amazing. So I just tried to watch and learn, but but that challenge was it's it's funny because some people have, have you know see Greg as a you know, a dipshit dad. And there's an element to that because it's, and it's hard to avoid. It really is because, you you know, we don't want, and there were choices we made not to make him, make him, like he could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Sometimes for the conflict that you need and for an episode to work, you know, he does need to kind of sometimes put himself in sticky situations. It is interesting those who kind of thought, oh, Greg's been a dipshit because that's almost become a sitcom stereotype. But also we also had, you know, I think Lisa was kind of putting her foot in her mouth you know, a lot and, you know, as M and, and, you know, had so much gusto that sometimes she, she, she ran into trouble without thinking sometimes. So it was a, a challenge, but it was, you know, I, I think with my writing and then the acting I do in the future, I would like to kind of move out of the domestic space and, and, and explore some new areas because I feel like I've done the dating and it's a date and, and, um, the, you know, the courtship in, in, in I Love You Too and, and, and the marriage in, in How to Stay Married. So the trilogy's I think done <laughs> and, um, We'll see where we can move off to next. Pete, we have barely scratched the surface. We haven't got to I Love You Too. We haven't got to your kids' books. I am going to talk about your stand-up in just a moment, but you have to promise to come back, I think, to The Weekend Briefing. I would love to, Jamil. It's been great. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Pete Hellier. You can catch his latest stand-up special as part of Chapel Off Chapel, streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. You ain't seen nothing yet. His podcast about classic films that his guests have not seen is also available wherever you get your podcasts. Don't go away. Weekend List is coming up. Thanks for sticking around for the weekend list, everyone. It is just me today, but I have got a couple of recommendations for you that are 
really, really good ones. The first is a play and it's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's by Oscar Wilde and it's been adapted and directed by Kip Williams. It's currently on in Melbourne, but it is going all over the country. It was originally a Sydney Theatre Company production, so you can catch it elsewhere if you want to hang out, but I highly recommend getting on uh, this train quickly because this is a truly remarkable show. It is a tour de force, right? It is absolutely incredible. It's a one-person show. It features an awe-inspiring performance from Erin Jean Norville, which for many people you will recognise that name because in 2017, Erin was the key witness in a defamation trial brought against the Daily Telegraph by actor Jeffrey Rush after that newspaper had reported the Sydney Theatre Company had received a complaint about Jeffrey Rush's behaviour during his time starring in a production of King Lear. That was an allegation, of course, which Jeffrey Rush denied. Erin's name became caught up in that trial. She didn't go to the press with her complaint. She wanted to stay out of the limelight, but she became the centre of this media storm. And a lot of the commentary at the time sort of suggested she was a not very good actress who was just trying to get noticed, which is problematic in so many ways. But what better way to prove everyone who thought that wrong than come out in a performance like this one, truly the performance of a lifetime, the kind of performance that you spend days and days, weeks and weeks afterwards talking about to anyone who will listen. So I really want to recommend The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is currently on at the Arts Centre Melbourne. My other recommendation for this week is actually an article. It's a Vox article. Uh, It's called Why the Return to the Office Isn't Working. I don't know about you, but this is like the number one talked about subject in my world at the moment is what does the return to the office look like for you? If you're someone who works in an office, what does it look like for your staff? If you're someone who manages staff, what does it look like for your boss? If you're someone who works for somebody else? This is a piece by Rani Moller who argues that there is no point returning to the office and that it absolutely doesn't work. And it unpacks, I think, all of the different perspectives in a really smart way. It's an American piece. Um, It's got a whole lot of research in it. I imagine the findings would be quite similar in Australia. So look, if you're someone that's grappling with this question for yourself uh, or for your business or organisation, that one is definitely worth a read. It's on Vox, why the return to the office isn't working. Folks, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode of The Briefing, then the best thing to do is to download the listener app and check us out there, subscribe and follow us there. And then we will give you little prompts whenever we drop an episode. If you're listening to this podcast elsewhere, just hit that follow button to make sure that you have us dropping into your feed and you don't forget about us. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Cheers, folks. Listener.